Hi, I'm Sean L. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Benji Aflalo is a stand-up comedian who loaned together with comedy pal Esther Povitsky, created, executive produces, and stars in the sitcom Alone Together, which already has been picked up for a second season by Freeform. They play versions of themselves, friends from different backgrounds trying to find love and success in Hollywood. Alone Together is also executive produced by the Lonely Island Guys. Benji met Esther at the Comedy Store, where he's part of a grand tradition of comedians who were former doormen at the club. He's also written for The Burn with Jeff Ross, Not Safe with Nikki Glaser, and the Comedy Central roasts of James Franco and Justin Bieber. So let's get to it! So, Benji F. Lalo. Yes? Um... You were just telling me about the joys of being able to be interviewed at a desk in an office. This feels very not me because I'm at a desk, you're on the couch, right? And it feels like I'm like in a position of power or something because I have a desk in an office chair. Well, you are the star of a TV show. I the you know what just happened? The assistant just gave me my lunch before everyone else, and it made me <laughs> uncomfortable because like everyone has their salad with their mm-hmm. name on it, and then I got a sandwich because I let myself today anyways uh yeah it made me uncomfortable and i'm gonna tell him soon to not do that anymore okay because i don't like that feeling have you changed your diet now that you're on camera i do when we're like shooting and stuff Mm -hmm. um but i'm also like learning as i go so like last season i like would try to avoid gluten because the bread i thought weighed me down and, Mm -hmm. and then we're on set i would do that too but now i'm realizing that really it's like like um, portion control is what because my problem is is like if I eat too much I want to fall asleep or I lose my energy and I'm already insecure about my ability to work hard and so if I don't eat responsibly then I'm like you're stupid you know you have an energy problem so I'm always trying to figure out like what it is that makes me tired after I eat it Mm -hmm. and I always was like oh it could be wheat it could be red meat and now I'm realizing that it's really just how much I eat which is hard because I love food and then I want to eat until I can't anymore now you were just telling me before we started that you're a native Angelino. Yes, yes I am. So, growing up here in in the hub of show business, yeah. did you imagine that that when when you grew up you would have a desk in an office and a TV show and be wondering about your diet? <laughs> um, I always wanted to not do something square, but I didn't like grow up around showbiz people. I don't square. Care. You're you're too young to be using the word square. Like I use that. it, man. <laughs> I didn't want to do anything, like, too square. Okay. Um, but that was sort of, like, a broad ambition. I always really liked music, and I always really liked comedy. So that was, when I was young, That was those were things I really loved and wanted to do. Um, but I didn't grow up around showbiz people. Everyone's like, oh, you're a Jew with a TV show from L.A. Like, certainly, mm-hmm. your dad's an entertainment lawyer or something, but that's not the case. But um, I think there is um, there is an element, like, when you grow up here, you're constantly, like oh, I bet that waiter's an actor, and that seems, you know, whatever rude things people would say about that. So it is a little embarrassing when you're around all your townie friends that you grew up with, and, like, you're trying to make it in showbiz, which seems like a bad idea, while they're all, like, getting their lives together in a normal way. How young were you when you decided 
you wanted to be in showbiz. Well, I think I think there's like something about wanting to be in entertainment or be an actor or a comedian or a musician where like you're kind of embarrassed to admit it to people before, especially before you start it, because it just sounds like a pipe dream if you don't really have any of the things that you can show people that makes it seem feasible because it's just something a big a big dream people sure. can say. So I think for a while I was embarrassed to admit it, but I was always in like school plays throughout grade school and high school. And then um, I actually did have an agent for like a year in high school. Um, one of my friends had an agent who was in the school play with me. And then I had like a few auditions my uh, junior year, or maybe it was my senior year. It was my senior year of high school. And I actually was like a guest star on a sitcom with Bob Saget. And then I decided that uh, it was called Raising Dad. And okay. then I decided I wanted to go to college. And I think I always knew I kind of wanted to be a comedian. And I felt like I was stupid because I like knew about Bill Hicks and stuff. And I was like, this guy's so smart and I'm a dummy and I want to be smart so I can be as cool as Bill Hicks one day. So I was like, I'm going to go to college. And then the agents were like, what are you going to college for? You already booked something. You booked your third audition. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to college. And then I kind of regretted it for a while. But yeah. did you leave L.A. for college? I did. Um, I didn't have much guidance, so I ended up at the University of Arizona. Okay. And then, Go um, Wildcats. Yeah. And then I transferred out of there and went to a school in New York called Marymount. Okay. Um, in the Upper East Side. And then, yeah, I, I kind of wanted to be a musician for a lot of college, but I just don't think I had the chops or the steam in my musical abilities to pursue that. And then towards the end of college, I started doing some open mics, and I went to like a liberal arts school, and every time I gave a presentation, people just laughed at me, even though I was trying to do something serious. So I was like, all right, I'm going to try comedy. I don't think music's for me, and that was sort of my plan. When you were younger, did you have a cover story when you were embarrassed to say music or comedy? Um, that's a good question. Um, I, I think so. Like, I had so many identity crises, like, or crises. Um, yeah. Like, even in college, like, one year I'd be a business major. One year I was a sociology major. You know, I was always just, like, switching. Or one year I was a theater major. So I think I was probably embarrassed. But, yeah, there were times where I was like, I'll be a businessman because I have a lot of, like, business people in my family. So I thought I could do that. But obviously I'm, I'm a pretty spacey dude, so that wasn't going to happen. And, yeah, I don't really know what my cover was. I, don't, I just think when you're young you can avoid it and say you don't know or something like that. Okay. Yeah. What was the moment when you were ready to go all in on this dream? It's funny. Um, I uh, I had been going to the cellar a lot just to watch comedy in college, and um, and then I came back to L.A. and my friend was like, "Hey, my sister's doing comedy now," and I was like, "Oh, he's like, come to the show. It's at the Improv." So in my head, I'm like, "The Improv? That's a big deal." And I sort of associate it with being as big of a deal as the cellar. But what I went to was like a, a c comedy class showcase, oh. and I had no real concept of what that was. I sort of thought like oh my God, all the LA comedians are really bad. And I'd only done two open mics. And at the time when I was in college, the seller was like Louis C.K., Jim Norton, Bill Burr, like all these guys who hadn't quite, they were amazing. Right. And so I was like, I'm not going to make it in New York, but if I go to LA, I can, I, I know I'm better than these people, but they were all like, it was all their first show right. ever. But I didn't really understand that because it was at the improv. And Adam Sandler was in the audience for some reason. So I was like, I'm going to go to LA there's going to be a famous person like Adam Sandler in the audience, and I'm going to be the best one on every show. And obviously, mm -hmm. that's not how it worked out, but I sort of jumped into it because I was sort of naive. So what did happen when you first jumped into it? Um, I, um, I spent a couple of years myself doing bringer shows. I don't know if your audience knows what that is. Oh, but yeah. it's, it's basically a show where you have to bring people. Because I was from L.A., I had that opportunity. And, so, and I, didn't, I was very naive. Like, 
at the time when I started, it was like I knew there were comedy clubs, and then I knew like Largo was cool. But I like couldn't even get in the door at Largo, so I just was like, oh well, if I get to perform at the comedy store, the improv, like that's the best I can do. But I didn't really understand that like bringer shows were sort of looked down upon and not really what it means to be a comedian. So I did that for a couple years, and then I got hired to be a door guy at the comedy store. Okay, and then that sort of like opened me up to like. Kind did you of know that, that 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 was a rich tradition? Of I did being a door guy at the comedy store meant something. Um, a little bit, probably not as much as I learned after I got hired there. And I sort of got hired there in a weird way. Most of the people, and at the time guys, but now they hire girls, but at the time they didn't. Most of the guys there would like sign up for that open mic every week and the wait out luck? there. Yeah, the potluck. And I never did. I tried it like once and then I didn't get up. And I was like, I'm not going to hang out at a comedy club for an hour and not get up. Like I'd rather go to a coffee shop open mic if I'm really going to do that. So I didn't understand the concept of like hanging out in comedy clubs and socializing. Like I always thought that was like associative and weird. Like I was like, I was like, you got to be about it. You got to get on stage. Hanging out at a comedy club or at an open mic where you don't get up is not productive. So I got hired there because Bobby Lee saw me at a bringer show and then he put in a good word with me with the talent coordinator. And I'd already asked the talent coordinator if they would hire me and he said no because I didn't hang out at all. He didn't know who I was. But once Bobby Lee put was in a word for me, or that was Tommy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so that's how I got hired there. So when I got hired there, like a lot of the guys weren't that nice to me because they were like, "Who is this guy? He does bringer shows. He didn't even do the open mic here." And like, I like did not understand that there was already like sort of like a little culture of door guys and open right. micers there that I wasn't part of. And yet, doing a bringer show helped you get that in. Exactly, a bringer show I almost didn't do because I was so nervous. Because for whatever reason, I thought those bringer shows were it. Like mm-hmm. I had no concept that that was not a cool thing to be doing and so for this bringer show where bobby lee saw me i almost didn't do it because i only managed to bring one friend and usually you want need to bring 10 friends or it's like a thing and i'm like well if i only bring one friend they're not gonna book me anymore and i'm gonna be in trouble with the guy who books the show and i was like all right i guess i'll just go and that ended up so it was a good lesson for me early on to like not believe in whatever i'm telling myself yeah yeah exactly and then i have no conviction (laughs) If I could give anybody any advice about comedy, at least for me, it's like, and I also learned that at the comedy store where it's like the people you think are cool aren't cool and the people you think aren't cool are actually cool. So I stopped having a lot of conviction on my beliefs in anything. What, what taught you that lesson? When did you have that epiphany? Um, I think the store taught me a lot because for the first time I was part of like a social culture, like a group of comedians who were together all the time. And then you'd see one comedian, you'd think they were so cool And then, you know, months would go by and you'd be like, wait, that guy's like an alcoholic and really sad and his career actually passed him by. And he's actually a hack that joke he tells someone else tells like there's just a lot of tricksters and uh, soft shoe shufflers in stand up. Soft shoe shufflers. So squares. Yeah. And squares. And then and then the opposite would happen. There'd be someone who I thought wasn't funny or didn't Mm. get it or was whatever. And then I'd realize like, oh, my God, I just didn't get what they were doing at first. This person's a genius. So. Yeah, so I, I try to stay neutral on a lot of things because, yeah, there's, you know, comedians, you've interviewed a ton, there's a ton of sociopaths, but then they're really funny or they're, they're, someone can seem nervous and standoffish right. and you read that as them being a dick, but it turns out they just have some social anxiety. Right. So, yeah, I, I kind of just like – my approach to stand-up, especially with comedians, is like all things have a place. Yeah. I don't hate anybody's stand-up. Like I'm not someone who's like, that guy sucks or – unless you're like stealing everyone's jokes or like – putting people down to in a gross way with your stand up like I think all everyone has a place and I, I can almost appreciate any anybody's stand up. That reminds me we both share a random uh T V credit uh that 
probably probably never mention, which is uh, Brody Stevens. Enjoy it. Oh, really? We we both appeared in episodes of that. Oh, awesome. Yeah, I love yeah. Brody. He's a good friend. <laughs> yeah, Brody is one of those people that you either get it or you have no idea what's going on with Brody. Yeah, some people just don't get it. Not everyone's for everybody. Who did you meet first, Jeff Ross or Esther Povitsky? Um, I met Esther first. Okay. Yeah. I met Esther at the comedy store too. And um, yeah. Was that from from learning to hang out? Well, sort of. I was a door guy at that point. So I was there every night pretty much till like 2 a.m. I was also a phones guy. So I was there during the day too. Sometimes I would work from like 10 a.m. to 2 a.m. Um, but yeah, Esther was, you know, a young, uh, young uh, comedian out of Skokie. And she was hanging out there and... I don't know if you know who Don Barris is. He used to do this thing called the Barris Kennedy Overdrive or the Bar- the Brody Stephen Barry. He used to do this. It's basically this well, he's band. He's like the late night. Yeah, guy. he's the late night guy at the store, and he does this band where they blast music and they lip sync and air guitar, and it's like so much fun. And it's like two a.m. and everyone's a drunken mess, and <laughs> and he commits so hard. And it would be every night I would watch that, and sometimes take part in it, sometimes flicker flicker the lights and okay. the, and stuff, and. We put on a whole show and everyone's so deranged and drunk at that point that it's just so fun and ridiculous. He doesn't do it as much anymore. But Esther used to hang out late and be in the band with him and she would like dance. Okay. And she would do this character where she acted like she was like a 15-year-old girl who was lost and just got off a bus from Illinois. And, and then Don would like play into it. And yeah, so I could, that's kind of how I could see her playing that. Yeah. She would nail it and that's kind of <laughs> how we got to know each other. Okay, cool. Yeah. But like a lot of your credits before Alone Together were roasts. Yes. So I imagine you – fell in with Jeff at some point. Yeah. Um, I've always been into Jeff Ross since I was a kid because, uh, you know, people my age, they, we grew up with Comedy Central and Dr. Katz, and so Jeff Ross was always there. So I always really liked him, and I always loved Ross. I kind of come from like a, a mean – not a mean family, but we're, we, we keep it real, I guess mm-hmm. you could say. And um, so I always like appreciated that type of humor. And my friend Tony Hinchcliffe had been working with him, and then right. yeah. he was hiring for his show, The Burn. And my buddy Tony was like, write a packet, and I wrote like the thickest packet you possibly could of roast jokes, and I got hired. So did roast jokes come easy to you because of your either your family life or watching all of these roasts? Um Maybe maybe easier than some people, just because like also like me and Tony used to host the potluck open mic there. Okay, and we gained a reputation for like being mean to people. But I th- this was before Kill Tony started. Yeah, this is a while ago. Okay. It was so we were so mean that uh, there it's somewhere out there. I'm sure I could find it. But these open micers started an open mic, and their flyer had pictures of me and Tony saying these guys will not be hosting the open mic because <laughs> these open micers just hated me. And I think it actually really like held me back how mean I was to some of those people. I was really immature, and I regret it. I, I wasn't like. I was trying to be funny and coming from that roast place, right? And um, I think a lot of people didn't like it. And um, anyway, so me and Tony sort of had that reputation for being roasty, and um, yeah. So I think there was still definitely a learning element in getting hired to write on a show because all of a sudden, like that show had like Emmy Emmy winners and Conan writers and Daily Show writers. So there was a lot I didn't know yet, but but yeah, I was sort of mean mean jokes did Did you get the burn before working on any of the specific roasts no the burn came first and that's sort of like a lot of those guys were roast writers and so that sort of proved that i I guess that i could roll with that group of writers (laughs) how many of the roasts did you work on i worked on two i worked on the james franco roast and the justin bieber roast 
And were you assigned to a specific comic or the celebrity or Jeff or how did that work for you? Um, for the most part, you're in the room writing with everybody and everyone's sort of helping everybody. And then for the James Franco roast, I helped Andy Samberg and I was sort of paired up with him. Okay. Yeah, and then that was awesome, and that's kind of how I got to know him, and he's now a producer on our show right. here. Right. Um, so I was that was gonna really ask cool. How, you, how Lonely Island got involved with Alone Together? I mean that. I that. I mean so it's kind of fortuitous. Yeah, it was cool. It's also like I'm not that connected in Hollywood showbiz, mm-hmm. cool people like stuff. So it was sort of weird that the company we ended up having produced our show. I actually like kind of knew somebody and had worked with because I have like two credits. <laughs> so yeah. Did you have any kind of ambitions with the roast? Because I know Comic Central hasn't done one in a couple of years at this point, but they were starting to have a tradition of promoting writers to like a, a guest slot on the dais. Um, I I'm never someone who feels like entitled to more. Mm-hmm. I was I was so grateful to get those opportunities uh, just to write on them that I never really felt like I'm next. You know, like. Even though I have a show now, like, I had to fight and scrape for this. So um, I never really felt like someone was just going to give me something because they liked me or thought it was funny. Okay. That's just not, not So you weren't, well, like, watching Jesselnick or Whitney Cummings and going, okay, I'm going to be the next one to, to get even, that slot. Not even close. Okay. I am not Jesselnick or Whitney Cummings. <laughs> they, are, they are beautiful people. <laughs> and they're very funny and funnier than me. So, no, I never felt entitled to that Okay. Type of stuff. At what point did you and Esther like? How did the the short film? Mm-hmm. So that was twenty fourteen. That's four years ago. Mm-hmm. So that's a kind of a long journey for this. It's been a very long journey. Yeah. How did the How did the initial short film come together? Um, it's It's actually um, we always made like I, we made a couple sketches together, her and I, over our friendship. But then it's actually funny that you bring up Brody because we were both at the Brody premiere party. I'm sure you were there. I think it was on La Cienega. And, um, um, so we're at the Brody premiere party and, um, and, um, and we were both in it and this one guy like Mike Gibbons was there and and me and Esther would just, we were codependent friends. So we're just like walking through this party with social anxiety, like kind of clutching to each other because we were scared to be there. And, um, and so Mike Gibbons came up to us who worked on Jeff's show and he was like really complimentary to us about how we were on Brody's show and how funny he thought we both were and, um, and he was just like really nice. And then, so me and Esther were like sort of flattered and we talked about comedy and he talked about how we were funny together. And then, and then, um, and then at one point, like Zach Galifianakis, like came up to Esther and started saying how great she did on Brody's show. And then we both looked at each other and we were just like, we got to just make something and do something already. And we were like, all right, fine. And I think probably within that month we had like the outline of our short and then it took us a long time to help to find the right people to help us shoot it and stuff and get it together because we didn't really have much experience in like producing our own short. The sketch you said you had done a couple sketches. Were those on YouTube or I think they are somewhere on YouTube. I don't even know. They were like really shoddy thrown together things where like um like we had a broom mic, which is a microphone taped to a broom. Okay. Kind of sketches. So in terms <laughs> of production value. Yeah. It didn't have yeah, we were like the production value we have on our short was new to us and that's why it took us so long to figure out how to get it going. Yeah, so how did you get all the pieces for that together? Because it's not it's not just, you know, making a six minute short. It's a nineteen minute it's like a full pilot. 
Yeah, well, it's funny you say that because at first in our head, we're like, this is going to be eight minutes because we both really like to improvise. And so for a while, we just had this outline that I think we wrote in like December of 2013. Yeah. And then we had this outline. It's like kind of like a beat sheet of it. And we're like, yeah, we don't need a script. We just have our beat sheet. We're going to shoot like an eight minute proof of concept thing. Mm -hmm. And then we finally, and then I met with some friends and they were like all stoners who said they could help me and it didn't work out. And then Esther had worked the, with this um, DP director. His name's Jacob Pinger. And um, he read our our outline. And he was like, I love it. I'll shoot it. Blah, blah, blah. And we're like, oh, my God. So um, we eventually shot it in August of the next year. And then um, so that would be 2014. Yeah, 2014. Exactly. And about a month before we shot, he was like, hey, just for the sake of being safe, why don't you guys script this out just so you know It'll make production easier and it'll be easier when I'm talking to the AD and figuring out everything. We're like, uh, okay. And then we scripted it out and it was like 25 pages. And he's like, you know how it works with pages. It's a page a minute and it's going to be 25 minutes. And we're like, oh, well, we didn't realize and we thought eight minutes. And <laughs> so we didn't know. And that's kind of how it ended up the length it did. Okay. Yeah. And in terms of financing it, was there, did you use any Kickstarter or anything like that? Or, um, I used or, my money and then my parents kicked down some cash too. We managed to do it for not that much money, but like at that point I had money from the burn and I had money from like the guy's choice awards. And so, yeah. That big I, spike TV money. Yeah. That big spike TV money, son. Um, it <laughs> now, actually, par- now Paramount Network. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I had those random writing gigs that helped me, but yeah, I, I put all, pretty much all the money I'd saved in to it at that time. And then my, my parents helped pay for like feeding the crew. Like they covered like lunches. That and, was nice of them. Yeah. So they helped too. So they were on board with show business. At that in point. that way, <laughs> in that way, financially, they were able to help you a little. Yeah. And, and did you and Esther have an, an idea of what you were going to do with it once you completed it? Um, I think in our in my head, I was just like, Esther's a lot smarter than me. So in my head, I was just like, we're going to make it and put it online and see what happens mm-hmm. and blah, 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 blah. But Esther's a lot smarter. So she was like, no, we have to try to get the right people to attach with and then we can pitch and this and that. So Esther, I had to really hold her hand on this part of the process. So the first thing we did was try to like attach like showrunners and a production company and then we had a lot of trouble doing that. People either wouldn't meet with us or anything, or people just weren't helping us. But the Lonely Islands Company party over here, they met with us. They really liked it. And we were like, sweet, Lonely Island Production Company, yes. And the two guys there at the time like really understood us. And so that felt really good. And then we attached Eben Russell, who's a, a really funny comedy writer, and he was friends with Esther's boyfriend. That's how she knew him. And okay. he really liked the short too. So we went into our pitch meetings um, with every network that would meet with us, four of them would, and um, yeah, and then we pitched it, and we had good good success in the uh, pitching process. So it came out in twenty fifteen. Y- yeah, like, timeline is yeah. What's sh- the time? So we shot it in August of two thousand fourteen. Mm-hmm. We had it done edited by December of two thousand fourteen, mm-hmm. and we didn't pitch it until December of two thousand fifteen because it took us that long to like get people to meet with us. Then we were working with the Lonely Island guys and they were like, "You know what? This short is so close to being an actual pilot. Maybe we can like rewrite a few things and just shoot a couple scenes to make it better." So then a few months went down the toilet trying to do that. Mm-hmm. And um and then yeah, by the time we like got networks to meet with us and figure everything out and 
It's also like as great as everyone we work with is, it's like you always have to like email and keep it moving because like people are always doing more important things than dealing with two losers with a short film. So there's a lot of pushing and, and reminding people. And so, yeah, after we had that short in the can, it took us a year just to get into network offices. How did you personally and then you and Esther together stay inspired and motivated through that year? Um, you, did you have other projects on the side? I know Esther did like a web series, a separate web series that ended up getting on TV. Um, yeah, I mean, but I for you, like, what's the? I would I would try to get writing work here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think things that kept me busy. I think there was probably a roast during that time that I wrote on, and I would do stand up and probably another guy's choice awards, and um, I worked on Nikki Glazer's pilot. I'm sure that happened there, but I would get really depressed, like. I was I I have some depression problems and like after we shot that short like I spent all my money so all of a sudden I had like no money and um and so I got pretty depressed and yeah so it's depression and random work here and there pretty much was what my life looked like yeah so how do you keep going through that um there's really nothing else for you, m- me to do you don't really have any other option like um I'm like obsessed addicted to doing stand up and so I'm gonna do that and then um. I would try to get new jobs. I would try to write spec scripts. I would write packets to try to get hired on other shows. Like, you just you just try. I don't I don't know why or how, but I just you just try. What helped What helped you the most when you were de- when in those times when you were really depressed? Was it therapy? Was it other comedians motivating you? Um, what What did you find helped the most? I, I'm getting so much better now at dealing with it than I was then. So my answer now is different. But during the that course of time, I don't know. Like um, doing stand up is good. Like having good sets. Like I'm lucky because like Jeff Ross and and Natasha Legero, they would take me on the road here and there. So that okay. was really good for my esteem. Um, I rely on my friends a lot. Um, every time I would get a two week writing job or anything like that was fun. Um, at times, I had, I had you know girlfriends that were fun and took my mind off stuff, so that was good too. Stuff like that. Okay. And then you pitched to four different networks. Yeah. Were the reactions all the same? They all want every network we pitched to. I'll I'll brag everybody. Mm-hmm. Every network we pitched to gave us an offer. Oh. So how did you ultimately decide that Freeform was the place? Um, cause they didn't have a, they didn't have much of a history in this regard. Um, it was, um, I think a big part of it, which is now proving to be a great decision was that we felt like if we went to other networks, we'd be like almost competing with like our peers. Okay. Like not that, like, I'm think I'm better than, it's not that it's that like, there's not like a, a sh- like if you go to other networks, it's like there's three other comedians with stand up stand up comics with shows on that network. And so we really felt like. Here was a network who was like rebranding, wanting to start anew, wanted to have a comedy, didn't have a comedy, didn't really have too many other comedies in development even. And so we really felt like out of our own insecurity that that would be the place. Because like I said, this whole process took two years. So we're like, I think the safest bet is the place that seems to have the most reason to be into us because that's proven to be our biggest issue the whole time. And, And so far, I think we've been right. Yeah, so the so the idea that Freeform didn't have a tradition worked. Yeah, worked in his favor because it made you you and Esther more comfortable. Yeah, with the idea of being oh well, they'll put all their marbles in with us and 
Kind of. We really just didn't want to like make a pilot and then be competing with one of our friends to like get picked up. Because it's like, why do you want to? Try to like out funny one of your friends who's probably just as funny to, as you right. or funnier. You know what I mean? Like, we just didn't feel like that was the right move. But then also marketing wise, I've talked to many comedians who have sitcoms on networks, and then they point to the billboard. Like in LA, especially with the billboards, they point to. Well, I didn't never saw any billboards for me. I saw billboards for everybody else. Yeah, I mean, Freeform is really marketing our show, so that's amazing, and the whole network's amazing. Like, there's not one bad. There's not one bad op- apple at their office. They are all really professional and really cool. So now you're, you know, we're here at the writers' offices. Mm-hmm. Where are you guys right now in terms of plotting out the show? We're in week two of eleven weeks of writing before we start shooting. But then there's still an open writers' room once we start shooting. But we're only part, able to be part of the day-to-day writers' room for eleven weeks. Um, yeah, we're in the second week. We have wait for season two. For season two, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, we have two story ideas. Mm-hmm. One's probably about to get sent to the network to see what they think. And yeah, and I feel, I feel really, really, really good about season two. I really think we have like an amazing group of writers as we did last year. But I think, um, I learned so much last year about how to be in the position I'm in. And, um, Is season two officially picked up? Yeah. Okay. That's why we're here. So, um, well, yeah. so, I mean, sometimes they give you a script deal. Uh, to script out. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I have no idea. For a potential season two. Yeah. So what have you learned from... I mean, only a couple episodes have been out. Yeah. So you're just... You're not able to incorporate the feedback yet? Or are you are you sort of... Um, I mean, I'm not only learning from feedback from what people think of the episodes. Like, I'm learning about, like, mistakes I know I made last year. Or, you know, like, I'm kind of, like, in, like, a still makes me uncomfortable to say, but I'm like sort of like in a boss position that I've never been in. I've always felt low status and I've always been working for other people. So it's like, it's, you have to like learn how to make that adjustment. And it's not even like, Oh, I'm the boss. Now I have, I need leadership skills, but it's, it's just different. It's just a different thing. No, you mentioned at the, at the beginning about, uh, getting your sandwich before everybody else. (laughs) Yeah. Like stuff like that makes me uncomfortable. Like, yeah, there was a moment where like, when we were doing the pilot, and they're like, well, what snacks do you want? And then, like, I was like, I can have whatever I want. And then there's, like, a weird moment where it's like, I've always been part of the crew and part of the writers just eating what they give us. Mm-hmm. And now I'm not because I'm eating fancy food or the special stuff. And so, like, I learned that that makes me feel yucky, and I don't – I try to avoid that. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Or, hey, hey, all you big all-star comedians out there, it's okay, <laughs> but it makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> um, and then um, there's so many things, like – being a stand-up forever, you write each and every one of your jokes. So I had to learn how to like trust writers and allow people to write for me and try things that maybe I don't think is my voice and then I discover it is. Or It's kind of like knowing when to lean in and when to lean out because sometimes it's like, this is my idea and I want it like this, which I rarely do. But it's knowing when to like uh, uh, assert yourself and when to not assert yourself and – yeah, there's, there's, I've learned so much. Or like when I was like a writer, it's like I would pitch ideas all day and then someone would look at me and tell me which ones were bad and which ones were good. But now like when I say random joke ideas or pitches, it like matters a little more because now people are like, wait, did Benji really like that ridiculous idea he just said? Do I need to write that down? And it's like, no, I just say ridiculous <laughs> stuff and then someone else tells me what's good. <laughs> Don't you know how this works? But, right. but it's just different. Have now. you Have you been able to talk to any of your friends or colleagues who have gone through this process before to go all right so what happens now that i'm i'm the star of a show in season two like how do i deal with this 
Yeah, I uh, I love getting advice from people. So um, yeah, I'm lucky because I uh, coming up in comedy, people like Jeff or Jeff Ross or Natasha Leggero or even having some of the Lonely Island guys around sometimes, like just having people you can ask questions to is something I always do. But I also like I've you know I've got like uh, you know successful people in my family and stuff that are successful in business or being in a leadership role and stuff. So I'll always ask my sister stuff and okay. stuff like that. Um, and what, what kind of advice would you pass along to somebody just coming up now as a comedian or getting their own show either? Like what, what advice would you feel is more important to be giving somebody? Um, I, you know, it's funny. I've been thinking about this because since the show started airing, a lot of young people will reach out to me and be like, I want to be an actor. What do I do? Or I've always wanted to, and you're inspiring me. Right. So I feel like that those are the people who need advice because that's what pe- that's out of everything people are asking me that's what I'm getting asked and um, I feel like I didn't come up as an actor I came up as a comedian and a writer so most of my advice would be like if you want to be an actor only like be ready for getting nothing because essentially when you're an actor you're waiting for people to hire you you're sort of waiting on other people to give you these opportunities and. And uh, I didn't do that. Like, I had to make a short. I had to write for other people. I had to do stand-up for 10 years. So I think if you only want to be an actor, be ready to be very comfortable with that. And a lot of wanting to be an actor is waiting around or doing community theater because you like acting or whatever. So my advice would be, if you can, if you think you have the ability to, branch out in a way where you're in a lot more control so you get to be an actor. Because ultimately, I wanted to act, but... I had to produce a short film to get the show. I had to do stand-up for 10 years to like help me get some of the knowledge and and learn my voice and learn about comedy. So it's not like I had some plan to be an actor and someone no one was handing me anything. That's why I had to do all this stuff. So I think if you want to be an actor, get used to waiting and stuff. But if you think you want to had any other route where you have more control, whether it's writing and producing your own thing or um, doing stand-up, I don't, whatever it is, it all requires a lot of work. And yeah, my, I don't know if that's good advice. My advice is like, get used to the void, brother, or um, unless you want to really throw your entire life at getting it done kind of yourself. Well, Benji, congrats on getting it done. Thank you. Putting putting all your emotional and financial investment into it. and Yeah. Sticking it out until it worked out. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com. More interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Last things first. Last things first.